Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Bandwagon Nerds is taped in front of a live studio audience. Thank you and thank you. Hello again, fellow basement dwellers. This is your good friend Patrick O'Dowd back from a three-week hiatus, right, Dave? This this is correct. Three weeks. Yes. It's not really hello again. It's hello for the first time at this point, Pat. Hello. Is it me I'm looking for? Anyway, I am back for this Labor Day edition of Bandwagon Nerds. We have a small bandwagon today as PC Tony is not with us. We are joined by our other two healers on the bandwagon, though. We've got the Reverend Ray Cash. We've got the lawyer, David Ungar. And we've got me, the old curmudgeon himself, Patrick O'Dowd, talking to you here on the ChairShot Radio Network, a part of thechairshot.com, where we encourage you all to always use your head. Thechairshot.com. Always. Use your head. And I am thrilled to be back, fellas. Did, did you miss me? Ray, Either Ray did you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I miss did, you, bro. You miss I, yeah, we I did. did. As, as the official record keeper of Bandwagon Nerds, I do feel compelled to remind everyone this is the 95th episode, and we are now officially into the home stretch for episode 100. But yes, we missed we you, are. Pat. We we definitely did, and uh, you know, robotic vagina, human penis. This is what happens when oh, you're not hold, here. Hold up, hold up a second, hold up a second, because I'm going to get to that. We're going to air some grievances in my absence, because I I said this on Chairshot Radio this morning, uh, in Cafe Monday when we're recording here on Cafe Monday, that uh, I feel like three. I think I I, can, I have a two episode absence threshold. That that might 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 be the limit. Because like episode three, that was about the time I started like yelling at the car as I'm commuting into work. Like I remember listening to, and, and here's the funny thing: is the third episode I missed wasn't the wasn't the worst offender. Robotic vagina was the worst offender, and That's I right, believe that man. was I'm sorry. that was 
that was that was just yeah. Good job. You Ray. were you, the inmates were running the asylum. It was a little too much, and and I was like, oh man, I need to get back here. I did. I I, I wanted to, I wanted to talk about it because the thing was listening to the episodes. Which you guys did a great job, by the way. You know, all kidding aside, you did a great job in my absence. I really appreciate you guys, you know, just kind of keeping the train rolling. I think that's one of the things I'm very proud of with this show is I don't think we've missed a week since we started this show. Like, since we hit the airwaves, I don't know that we've ever missed a week. Now, our, our date has moved around. We've been on different days of the week, but we've been a mainstay on the Chairshot Radio Network now for on Mondays for quite some time. And that really is a testament, one, to, to people being willing to jump on the show uh, and for just all of you guys to, to fill in. That being said, I got a couple of things that just irked me, kind of kind of got me all, got my toes curled up a little bit. The first one, okay, the robot, the robotic vagina conversation. <laughs> what, like, dude, what, what the hell, man? Now, if you want, like, that is true basement dwelling nerd conversation material. I guess I'll grant you that. It reminds me of something you would see. You guys ever watch the show Robot Chicken on Cartoon Network, Adult Swim? Yeah. So there's a there's a nerd character that talks like this. He's got a big this. And he talks about things being the greatest in the history of ever. And I think he would be talking about a robotic vagina as if it was the greatest thing in the history of ever. I was intrigued by your criteria because I did wonder if Seven of Nine from D Space Nine counted as a legitimate robotic vagina. But she's a Borg, so technically she's human but not human. Robot, I don't know. Uh, I also think that there should have been automatic, like an honorable mention to, even though it's sexy and she would have killed you by being sexy, the uh, the Terminator from Terminator 3. Who, okay. Yeah, yeah, see? Mm-hmm. Um, delightful. But that's that's my com- uh, my contribution to that conversation. I was hoping we'd send up the plat signal today with PC Tony being absent and that he'd be able to make it. Unfortunately, he's not here you with us. Gotta be a tiebreaker, Pat. Lisa from Weird Science. Does she count or not? I I argue no. If if for no other reason than she struck me more as a genie and, and as anything, because she kind of grants their wishes. And teaches them life lessons along the way. And that's especially true in the show, not just the movie. But, like, no, no argument for me that Kelly LeBrock was one of the, the most beautiful women of the 80s. Like, my God, just amazing. So so there was that. Uh, the What was the other – what was one of the other things that really kind of set me off? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into Dave being old man yells at Cloud here in a minute over music. Because uh, I was fascinated. Yes, we can do that. Yes, I was fast. I was fascinated by that conversation from you guys, listening to you talk about this is pop. I I have to I have to say I was kind of sad I missed the country music episode because I feel like I could have helped bring some more to that conversation. Just because I think I have I think I have a little bit more of an affinity for country as pop, and and just some of the artists that I would have loved to have talked about a little bit more in depth, I think would have been a lot of fun. Like for those of you who don't know, Garth Brooks actually got his start in my neck of the woods in, in my part of the country doing fairs, County fairs in middle of nowhere, Illinois. He was, he was booked and, and subsequently blew off a show in uh, the, 
Moultrie Douglas County Fair, which is my home county, he uh, he he became too big for that show. But I was I was really fascinated by that. But I really, uh, Dave, good music still being made, man. You just don't like it. You're, I, I think that's that's really okay. what it comes. To. Good music is still being made by good artists. My thing is more along the lines that no, this is this is what we talked about, Ray. We were talking about it how Mm -hmm. there it just I think musicians nowadays are too reliant on technology, and I do think musicianship has has gone down. I disagree with you wholeheartedly because musicianship has changed from what you describe as musicianship. This is literally the conversation we had during This Is Pop when we were talking about auto-tune. Yeah. Like, this is like your argument, and this is not a knock on you. Well, it's kind of a knock on you, Dave. But this is an argument that's been made with music for as long as music has existed. As music is made and it has changed people don't see the changes older generations don't see the changes being made necessarily as true musicianship and and that i think is surprising to me because when you look at the way artists use music and and the other thing is corporate music has always existed and and i'll i'll use i'll use um a musical as an example how many how many of you all seen the musical dream girls Oh yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. What happens to the Cadillac car song in Dreamgirls, Ray? Do you remember? Oh, it, it, yeah, the white people take it over. The white people take it over, record executives take it over and find a sound. Another example of this, like, and this is from the 50s, is you look at the way um record labels control. If you remember the movie That Thing You Do, the band, the Wonders, they make this album, right? They cut this album, they get their hit. Or no, they, they get their hit. That's what it is. They have their hit. And that's like their one hit. And they do this stuff. But then when they go into the studio, the, the company's like, this is the sound you're gonna be, you're gonna do, this is how you're produced, and this is what's gonna happen. And so music continues to evolve and develop and, and move around in the way that stuff gets changed. You know, I was just sitting there, I was thinking, like, just some of the artists that are out there making great music right now. I think Dua Lipa is a heck of an artist. Whether you like whether you like her style or the way she makes it, Florence and the Machine, hell sure. of an artist. Bruno Mars, I would argue Bruno Mars is an artist. Now he he does a lot of throwback sounds to old Motown and soul, but he also has reggae and just all kinds of great stuff in there. Um, even a band that a lot of people dismiss because they sound like Led Zeppelin and they think they're just ripping off Led Zeppelin sound, Greta Van Fleet is a is a pretty darn solid rock band they just love led zeppelin and the guy the lead singer has a voice that can that can emulate that but they're they're producing their own dorothy is another terrific artist out there mika has been doing doing music for the last 10 to 20 years i'd even argue ariana grande uh taylor swift i think is is a better artist than people give her credit for and you can you can say that but she went from country to pop with no no tr- no trouble at all. So I think it's out there. I think that it's just different. Dave, I love you and your classic rock embracement. I like you know you you just you know embrace your Rush, Metallica, Bon Jovi. Look, this is roots, this is the litmus be- test for me. It's not you two guys. It's my kids who are seventeen and nineteen who tell me the same thing that yeah, music nowadays just isn't what it was in the old days, and they're still listening to the older who- stuff. 
influenced they, their musical yeah, not me they grew not up under you <laughs> not me they don't listen to hardly any of this shit i listen to so bullshit anyway so those are my those are kind of my two takes as i really wanted i really wish i could have been on the show for the musicianship conversation because there's so much that i would have loved to have just talked about and contributed and i missed it but that that is neither here nor there You're forgetting about the burial of the irish you wanted to talk about that oh, because the, the the perpetrator of that conversation isn't here i just was surprised that a black man would take on the language of the oppressor <laughs> the irish with the british our oppressors gentlemen i was shook that my people the people that that suffered long through english tyranny would be supported by a black man uh, like would not be supported by a black man so christopher platt i love you i was really hoping to have some banter about this yeah all in good fun ray heard me um, raise my witness i warned chris I was like don't lump them in together man that that's the wrong move to make it- his exact words were, Seamus would not be happy right now. Seamus <laughs> <laughs> would not be happy right now. And, and it's, it's one of those things, that, and without going into a, a long history lesson here, of just the reason that country is torn in two is because of British rule. And that's always it's – a, it's a touchy, touchy subject for people. Like, and I, I did not grow up on the island. I was born in – middle of nowhere illinois uh but it, it is it's one of those things it's it's like if if we were to call south africans just another bunch of dutch people like you just no you just don't do it like it's it, it's it's messed up so there you go those those are my bones to pick i'm back for two weeks and then guys i'm actually out um uh two weeks now i and i'll even brock lesnar got that brock lesnar schedule huh well you're getting the brock lesnar money at least no no but i'm doing it's it's another one of those things that got uh it was a covid impacted reschedule so my son the little doubt he he loves lego right like just big into lego loves building and about a you know year and a half ago around my birthday actually i bought tickets for him and i to go to a thing called brick fest and it's it's a Lego, like it's a Lego convention, and we were really excited to go. It got canceled. Well, it got rescheduled, and they gave us complimentary two-day passes. Well, he oh, can't nice. go on Saturday uh, because he is um, he's a soccer player. He's got his one of I think it's his first game of the season. So we didn't want, he didn't want to miss that because it's a two-day pass. We're gonna go that Sunday. So when we record, unfortunately, I won't be there to record because I'm gonna I'm gonna spend some quality time with a little doubt. And that's, you know, I'm sorry to, to, to paraphrase the family's more important. And I think you guys would both agree with that. Like, you know, oh, Dave went to absolutely. Disney with his family, with his son, missed a show. Ray, I know you've done plenty of stuff, you know, dedicating time, whether it's for fun or for, you know, just being with your family. Like that stuff's important. Tony blows and, off uh, the show to go play golf. You know how it is. Which is fine. Like everybody's got their thing and what they want to do. And we're a capable group of nerds. In fact, this could be the most nerded out episode because the three hardcore nerds are here on site. And we're going to talk, we're going to continue our conversation of This Is Pop. Much to my chagrin, we will continue to talk about Marvel's What If, although both of, and I just, you went behind my back, David. 
You waited till it was around and be like, I know Patrick doesn't like to do two shows. We're going to do two shows anyway. So now we're we stuck were doing all two shows. watching it anyway. So that's why I did it. And, and if there was ever an episode that we needed to talk about, it would be I'm, this one. I'm just saying I've grown weary of Marvel shows. I don't know. I was I was ready to just stick with one. But then we're going to we're not going to go to the trailer park this week. We're going to talk some news around the nerdosphere. A lot of it centering on how a bunch of a bunch of a bunch of shitheads Disney really is as as a company again. I think we I think it's funny. We're going to talk about a show that's on Disney Plus and then we're going to turn around and just crap all over Disney for <laughs> two, of our, two of our news Fair stories. This is why these are three wrestling podcasters doing a nerd-based show. We're going to crap on the very product that we love. Well, I I like to say (laughs) we're going to have a highly critical eye. We're going to take a highly critical eye at some of this nerds. And then uh, we're going to talk some DC fandom because it's 40 days away. We've gotten a release on the uh, the lineup, and so that's how we'll spend the second half of our show is basically I'm going to let the two DC guys – talk about how excited they are for DC fandom. But before we do any of that, we're going to take our first quick commercial break and and pay some bills. Before we go to the recorded stuff, though, it is my duty to remind you that you're listening to Bandwagon Nerds on the ChairShot Radio Network, part of the ChairShot.com. And if you love what we do here at thechairshot.com, then the best way to support us is to head over to prowrestlingtees.com forward slash thechairshot and invest in a in a bandwagon nerds chairshot wrestling t-shirt. All kinds of, I fucked that up. This is what happens when Christopher Platt is not around. Prowrestlingtees.com forward slash thechairshot. Invest in one of our mini chairshot.com shirts including the bandwagon nerd shirt including several of our other shows we've got sayings and phrases from our shows like hashtag journalism we've got og chair shot logos we've got all over 25 different designs to choose from you can get that shirt in a standard style for $19.99 or if you're feeling fancy you can spend a few dollars more and get it soft style make it feel all nice and tender on your giblets and it's monday Labor Day, as this is playing, you can still enter the promo code Monday only of Labor Day and get a nice little discount on your purchase. So get in there and do that. Get that discount and and support thechairshot.com. Support us. We love giving you content every single day. And we do it Monday through Sunday and then starting all over again on Sunday. We have got shows on top of shows. We bring you quality content. We want to keep doing it. And the best way to do that is that over to prowrestlingtees.com forward slash the chair shot. When we come back, our back-to-back episode reviews of what is what if and this is pop. You are listening to Bandwagon Nerds on the Chair Shot Radio Network, a part of the chairshot.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? 
At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. This is your boy, Kenny Killer, telling you to make sure you check out thechairshot.com, bringing you breaking news, interviews, podcasts galore, everything pro wrestling. Make sure you check it out, thechairshot.com. Oh, boy. I tell you, guys, I asked this of Dave on Chairshot Radio. Ray, I'll ask you. I think I'm a little amped to be back. Like, I really do. Do I, do I feel amped? I think that's why I messed up the commercial. CM Punk, Brock Lesnar, Becky Lynch, and Patrick fucking O'Dowd. Let's yes, go. all of the returns, triumphant returns. And we're going to start by breaking down two episodes of the shows we're covering. We're going to start with This Is Pop because that's the one we've been doing first. And I know last week's episode, that was the uh, the Brit Pop episode, correct? Mm-hmm. And that was that was less than exciting. I was right there with you guys, and, and I'm a fan of Oasis, but I was like, this this episode kind of bored me a little bit. So I'm glad, and I hope you guys were too. I'm happy to say that this week's episode I really liked and found informative because it was about it was called Festival Rising, and it was about the music festival. And, and I just want to start this conversation with: Has everybody here on the show today? attended a music festival at some point because i i have i definitely have dave you're nodding ray what about you are you sheltered unfortunately i have not yeah i mean the, the only thing close to a festival you can consider is homecoming for preview but i wouldn't even consider that a festival i okay. have not had the opportunity and that is something i am i'm going to get to south by southwest one of these days real real nice. real soon in the next couple of years for sure yeah yeah I, uh... My- Oh, go ahead, Dave. Sorry. As I said, I you know this is kind of like this. This episode is a continuation of Chair Shot Radio because, ironically enough, timing wise, you couldn't have timed this better to watch this episode, and then what Patrick and I have gone through this week and not gone through but experienced. Um, yeah, I think what I did Friday was probably pretty close to a festival. Almost, you get four bands. That's pretty close. So, um, yeah, I bet I, you know I've been to like Monsters of Rock. I remember that. I mean, certainly nothing. Like what they're talking about, Us Festival, Woodstock, uh, Coachella, which is down the street from me, but good luck getting in, that sort of thing. But um, yeah, it was, a, right. it was a really cool, I mean, very topical when you consider everything going on in the world and, and just what these festivals really mean to us as a species. Um, so yeah, I thought it was an excellent episode. My first major live music experience with like a monster headlining band was was a festival i went to rock fest in chicago illinois with my friend chris uh and a bunch of his uh, and his friends we only went for one day but the day that we went had four headlining acts to wrap up uh, a build-up of music on, on multiple main stages and I always, I will never forget this because one of these acts was not like the other. I think I told you this story, Dave, when we did um, when we did the Bare Naked Ladies on Chair Shot Radio. But the four headlining acts were Metallica, Kid Rock, 
Stone Temple Pilots, and the Bare Naked Ladies. And mm. the rest of the lineup were bands like Veruca Salt, and it was all these like alternative to hard rock to metal bands, and then the Bare Naked Ladies. And the thing that was so great about that experience and why I hope anybody who's listening to this will, will participate in a festival at some point or attend a festival at some point is music is, I, I would argue that music is just like going to see a live pro wrestling show in the sense that it has a very strong community that goes like you are a part of an experience and you share that with the rest of the audience in a way that I think is wholly un wholly unlike anything else you can do and i would say it's a festival even more so than going to a concert because it's just everybody intermingling and there's all this stuff going on like you go to a concert you find your seat you get your beers or whatever i you know at at rock fest we're just all thrust we were all on this field I remember when Stone Temple Pilots hit, I like the most violent mosh pit I could have expected out of out of everything. I remember being so close to the stage that when Kid Rock hit, I could see Joe C recognize his facial features. That's how I ended up with Kid Rock's drumstick at the show because he he tossed the sticks into the crowd. I caught one, and that is also why I left the mosh pit area because I was afraid of getting assaulted over a drumstick like i caught that thing i showed it to my friend and we left uh <laughs> smart area. choice smart choice and somebody and some dude tried to take it from me like i was holding the drumstick like right firmly in the middle and this dude was like oh and i was like look with your eyes not with your hands and uh got myself got myself out of there but it, it was just it was huge it was magnetic and so for this episode of this is pop you know to see them document the history from the late 60s in san francisco through woodstock and talking about was it glastonbury and how that's a festival that's still going today and how it's evolved with the times and how in the united states we've we've had so many opportunities and we've found great ways to fuck it up with woodstock 99 and Yet there's still like things like Coachella is is going on. South by Southwest is still going Burning on. Man. Burning Man. Um, what was the other one that Buna Buna something? Um, oh, that they talked about. Oh, Bona 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 It was in Tennessee. Yeah, yeah. something like that. Yeah. But Lollapalooza uh, still goes on. Yeah. Lollapalooza. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember in the '90s when that thing started, and that was, was huge. huge. Lilith Fair. They didn't even talk about Lilith Fair. That was always a big one as well. Um that that would go on and just to see how that has kind of it's been both commercialized and it avoids commercialization if that makes sense depending on the organizers is outstanding and it's like an independent wrestling show because it costs a lot of money but some uh, oftentimes doesn't make his money back but but they're special it was absolutely a passion project Right. Um, and much like independent wrestling promoters, the overwhelming majority of them are just fans who lugged in some money or saved some money or whatever and won the kind of fantasy book. And it just continued that way. Um, and I liked how they showed how I, I love when you talk about festivals, you have to talk to the promoter or the person or the creator of it, because you um, you want to see the idea of where they came from. Um, a few about a month or two ago, I mentioned to you guys at HBO Max. Uh, had a Bill Simmons documentary about Woodstock 99. 
And in it, you got a chance to talk to the people who created Woodstock and not only 99, they did all three of them, 69, 94 and 99. And so it was really cool to kind of see that mindset and then to know, to talk about all these, to talk to the milk farmer for Glastonbury, to talk to the dude from Us Fest or Us, the Us, whatever it was called, to, to, uh, to know that festivals as we know them started from the Jefferson Airplane, just like jamming in a park. It's really kind of cool bed, to On a flatbed truck in a park. Isn't that, isn't that so dope? Like, just to think where we are now. So, but it's, it's absolutely a passion project. And each one of these festivals, as crazy as it sounds, takes the personality of the people behind it. And that's cool. Uh, for Woodstock 99, it's pretty terrible. Mm-hmm. But it ends up what it is. Ultimately, if you're going to have a festival of that level, the point of a festival is, is to be absolutely non-commercialized, non-capitalistic, capitalistic, all about the music. But I mean, you're not going to get Metallica's or your Limp Biscuits or in, um, in the newer days, your Ariana Grande's and your Rihanna's and Beyonce's if ain't no money being paid. So it's a really fine line. You know who will do a festival, and I, I respect him for it? Dave Grohl and the Foo Fighters. They'll oh, do a festival. Man, but that's the most passionate dude about music, probably walking the earth to this day. By the way, another reason to get, um, I think, is it on Peacock? It's either on Peacock or Paramount Plus. He's got a documentary series. Paramount where, Plus. Like, I know what you're talking about. He, he like hangs out with various artists and their parents, and it's, it's a really, really great show. Dave Grohl and, and the Foo Fighters is like the last – act from like the late 90s early 2000s that i want to see live in person because I, I i can only assume that they put on a hell of a show oh my goodness i haven't seen them live yet they're they're on my list as well but um right yeah the the documentary was great talking about festivals love learning about glastonbury and just the kind of the the trajectory of how festivals have gone down over the years um my only th- the only thing that was seemed to be missing is I don't know how you do a documentary on, on festivals and not talk about Live Aid. It's probably I'm so the, glad you brought that up. It's probably the most important that. festival in the history of music because next to Woodstock. I wonder. Well, I've always wondered about this because you, you, I wonder if it's because they couldn't get Geldof Possibly. to do the do the interview. Possibly. Uh, I also like because I actually didn't like that they included the the us thing either because those. Those to me didn't necessarily feel like festivals so much at like that was a charity event, right? That was designed to raise us, us fest or whatever that was called was was right. to be about and togetherness. Like, I mean, I remember when us fest went down and they were focusing on men at work. Van Halen stole the whole damn festival. That performance right. that they did was iconic for many years. So yeah, there's some they're selective as to what they talk about, and I don't know the reasons why. Maybe it is licensing. Right could be a lot of different things well, cause, but because i think because you talk you talk about live aid i remember kind of the the midwest country western version of that was far made yeah. like and <laughs> it, it, it was the same sort of idea though but it was like a day day long thing um bunch of different artists it just i think it has a i think it had a different feel to what they were trying to do because like live Aid was a telethon um yeah. us fest wasn't anything like that same thing with like a lot of these other things. So I, I wonder if they, they just categorized it differently. Or like I said, you know, you, if you can't, you can't talk about live aid without getting Geldof off on, on there to, to talk about 
providing that so or doing that. To, so to be fair, they talked about Woodstock without having the Woodstock promoters. Fair. I, I get you there. I hear you. There's uh, lots of I mean I think like the first, like you talk about the first festival you went to, Pat, like I think the first one that qualifies for, and I don't know, I think once you get above three bands or beyond, now you're into festival range, probably even if it's only one day. But like the first one I did was Monsters of Rock, which wasn't in a field. It was an RFK stadium. But by the end of the concert, you would never have known because they destroyed half of the stadium during that. But yeah, I, I think like you're saying, festivals are their, their destination location for a lot of people as you're going there for the sheer purpose of to, ex, you know, experience your love of music with like-minded people, which yeah, is very much right. like pro wrestling. And, and I would love to go to see Coachella. I can't wait for them to bring it back. I, I just thought from a societal standpoint where we're at right now, and we talked about this on chair shot radio, the feeling like at Dodger stadium the other night of, of that festival atmosphere where people who right. wanted to celebrate music, even though, this stuff is still going on around us, but people are like, screw it. We're going to celebrate music. We're going to do something that feels normal and we're going to take our chances with the consequences. And, you know, now you look at where we are with nothing happening in 2020. And I think you, you had a, your friend, Jim was on, um, I forget his last name, Pat, but he was on one of the episodes. Ryan. Yeah. And, Jim Ryan. and he, he talked about how he was going to all sorts of festivals and we got him on the show right when the pandemic was really, I mean, I say at its height, but it's at its height. It's get again right now in some ways. But he talked a lot about festivals and how he um, had attended to so many of those and the impact yep. that it had had on the industry and what he did. So, yeah, it, it's great to be reminded of what these mega events are like. And, and you get the hope that we'll return to that in some fashion somewhere in the near future. And this was a good reminder of just kind of what has been out there and where we hope to get to again. I, I have a question, if you guys don't mind. Do you guys, being the elder statesmen who have actually been to these things, do you guys see a difference in the kind of regular every year type festivals like a Coachella or a Lollapalooza versus a Woodstock? They just kind of like a one off. Because the reason I ask that is because if I miss Coachella this year, and I know we're in a pandemic, but just hypothetically speaking, I can go back next year. I may not see all the same people, but I'll get the same vibe. If you missed Woodstock like, like 69, you just missed. Well, here, I'll, I'll answer that with Woodstock 69 versus 94 and 99 are completely different animals. Yeah. Um, the big problem, because, you know, 94 was the 25th anniversary. Get it. 99, and this is one of the points they made up and made in the uh, the episode, that was purely a commercial effort to cash in on the name Woodstock, on the event. So there is this feeling of exclusivity that, you know, if I miss it, it might, you know, it might be, all, you know, I might have missed like this, you know, touchstone event. I think the thing about an annual festival, though, I, I again, I would compare it to wrestling. When you attend WrestleMania, like that's special, that WrestleMania, no matter how good or bad it is, that's special to you. Like if I had attended WrestleMania nine, which is, let's be honest, is not a good WrestleMania. Like you still hold that memory of this was this thing I got to be a part of and participate in and, and see and witness. I, I would venture to argue that attending a Coachella or attending a Lollapalooza. And the thing I like about Lollapalooza is that it moves. 
right? Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't just do one location. Like it's not just Lollapalooza is here this year. It's going to go here, here, and here. Uh, or, you know, there's one, there's, there's something similar in Chicago. I can't remember what it's called off the top of my head where they have, it's an annual musical festival every year. Going to see it year in and year out, or even just one year, that year is special to me. Um, I don't, you know, I, I think it, you know, does, you know, are some years better than others? Probably. I mean, yeah, but I don't, I don't know that you, there's a sense of loss either way that we, that is one, one miss missing one or attending one would be bigger than the other. I think that they're, they're unique in design and unique in the way it is that it's, it's like an apples and oranges comparison in my opinion. Cause like when I attend, when I, it, the one time I attend Coachella, which I'm not going to attend Coachella, but if I were to, like that's my that's my moment. That's that's my experience. That's my big thing. Um, whereas, you know, say they do Woodstock 2025. Stay the fuck away from that, people. <laughs> Don't do it. It's 2027. 2027. There you go. So that. I guess- I take, yeah. I tend to agree with Pat that it's very comparable to WrestleMania, something like Coachella. The some cards are going to be better than others. Some lineups are going to be better than others. You know, uh, Lollapalooza travels around. Like what I went to the Hella Mega Tour, that lineup. You know, this is probably the only time they're going to do that. So that's a little bit different when you're trying to say, okay, well, you know, I've got Weezer, Fallout Boy, and Green Day touring together a year and committing to that's what I liked about the concert is they committed to this tour. And even through the pandemic, they said a year later, we are going to go forward with this that we planned a year earlier and still do it. You know, lineups like that, those are probably more like the once in a lifetime sort of opportunities to see that specific lineup at a specific location, but like a a big event, like Lollapalooza, Coachella, um, some of the other ones that are out there, Glastonbury, you know they're going to be there every year. It's just a question of, is this lineup something that compels yeah. me to say, I want to go see this particular lineup? I know the location. And, and so I think, yeah, it's a little bit different when you're comparing something like Coachella to like something like I just went to. And I, and I don't but I, mean but to... I mean, I went, but I went to WrestleMania 26. Okay. Yeah, I was at WrestleMania 9. So there. But But here's my thing. But that's my experience at that event. And it's special to me. Even though, and it's really, you know, a one match show when you really get down to it. And I would say that it's as great of an experience as anything else I went to because I I got to go. Like, it's still a destination event. Sure. And and I don't mean to, because I agree with everything you guys are saying. I think how I'm looking at my mind using the WrestleMania uh, analogy is if I miss WrestleMania 26, well, I can go to WrestleMania 27. But like, for example, All In, there's only one of them that ever happened in, in the history of wrestling. So like, that's something that I would prioritize going to over WrestleMania because I can go to WrestleMania next year. And so I'm thinking, do you guys see a difference from a festival standpoint? Because I can go to Coachella every single year. I can go to Glastonbury every single year. But Patrick Fest, I can't. I, it's only once in history. Sign me up I mean, for Patrick Fest, yeah. I'm with it. Every, I'm every with week it. is Patrick Fest. That's bandwagon <laughs> nerds. So. Well, oh, every week, every snap. week until you know a hiatus, and then you know I come back. I, I, so you know Patrick Fest doesn't always have Patrick, but robotic vagina fest. No, I, probably I doesn't work. Your, yes, I, I, I just think that, that 
I just I just think that the comparisons are different. Like I think being like I attended this this one singular event that is is a huge deal in its own right. It's the different sort of excitement and high that I would get from I got to attend this major annual event because not everybody gets to go to either. But you're right. You, there's there's always an opportunity. You never know when the last one will be because you don't like there. There may come a time where Coachella no longer exists. I don't see it happen anytime soon. But I I think that there is a level of being able to take it for granted that obviously you can't with uh, with a thing like uh, with a thing like Woodstock. An event like Woodstock, the US Fest so, or whatever it was, yeah, yeah. it's always so yeah. only so often they're going to have those. And there so. is, and like WrestleMania, there's also the historical perspective of it that when you're actually there yeah. experiencing it, like for me, yeah, WrestleMania Nine was cool because I was there, and yeah, looking back on it from a historical perspective, it's like okay, not so much. But I don't think that the people who were at Woodstock in '69, as it was going on, had any real realization that this was the the musical festival of all time. I don't know, man, because they was high as fuck. Well, so, that's like, that's that's, that's a different true. level of that's of true. Being. They may I have thought know. this is the greatest shit ever. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, I uh, again, I really enjoyed this episode. I, I liked going through this history books. I'm also really ex- excited for episode seven, which is going to take a look at music and protest. And for any, I, I think if I read the description correctly. And anybody who knows anything about me knows that I, I am a, a very strongly politically motivated, and I do think that music you? is a terrific. No. I know, shocker, right? And, and, and music is an amazing vehicle for that, and and the opportunity to make statements. And so, stay tuned for next week's episode because I'm I'm excited to to take a deep dive. And in fact, I may listen to uh, one of my favorite albums of protest music done by um, John Legend in conjunction with The Roots. It's called Wake Up. Uh, it's a collaborative album with a ton of other artists and is all they're all covers of uh, previous tunes that have been that were huge in the 60s and 70s that, that may not have necessarily gotten the attention and love had it not been for John Legend and The Roots kind of doing these remakes and covers and saying, Hey folks, listen to that. So stay tuned to that. Cause we're, we're definitely going to cover that. And I think that's going to be a good deep dive. Okay. Let's, let's cue the Marvel music. Let's cue. Let's talk about our second show as you two do your stupid fucking victory dance. <sighs> Because you couldn't just cover it in the nerd review and be happy with that. Needed words, brother. Verbal you words. need words. We needed to talk about this. As did my you... good friend PC Tunney says, y'all needed to hear this with your earballs. Did we? Okay. So here, here's what I want to say about What If that I found very, very interesting. This show every week has progressively gotten darker 
He's fucking episode. Like, it's so fascinating to watch because, you know, first episode, we're sitting there with Peggy Carter, and it's like the original, you know, the original Captain America is no longer Captain America. It's a Captain Britain, and we get Steve Rogers as the first Iron Man. And even though it's got that bittersweet end because it basically just flips the script on the Avengers, you're like, oh, that's kind of nice. Then you get this new take on the Ravagers and basically unraveling everything that would have happened in Endgame and Infinity War with T'Challa and getting to hear Chadwick Boseman's voice again. How sweet. And then we kill all the fucking Avengers in the third episode. Just kill them all in what is is my least favorite episode because I, I hated that. I hated the Ant-Man twist. I hated that it was Hank Pym all distraught over the death of his daughter deciding to just take everything away from Nick Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D. Like, whatever. It was fine, but I hated it. I hated that episode. So I'm so glad that I didn't write the uh, the nerd review for that one to let you guys handle it, because I would have definitely would have been like 1.2 out of 5, and you all would have been God, like, I could, actually hear, I could actually hear Ray being like, Sir! In my head. Like, Sir! I, I gave it the Tokyo Dome score. I gave it 6 out of 5. Hey, and it's, that's the great thing about the subjective nature of reviews is that one person can love it and hate it. I went Damon Wayans and David Allen Greer hated it, and you loved it, and that's that's totally fine. You gave it five snaps. Well so good for you. Well done. Then we get this episode where we Doctor Strange undoes the universe in his grief. I mean, goddamn, guys. It's the most <laughs> DC episode of What If that we've gotten so far. Boy, I tell Seriously. you. Seriously. Like, and everything about it is dark. Like, the tone of the animation is even darker. Like, they shaded it down. It was really, really well done. And this idea of a split Doctor Strange as Steven continues to try and save the life of, what's her name? Rachel? Christine. No. Rachel's from Dark Knight. Rachel's from Dark Knight. Yeah, saves Christine over and over and over again, which I found interesting because it takes a, a few liberties with the film itself, like your sort of your film recognition. Because, like, yeah, he's in love with her and close, but his arrogance kind of keeps him at a distance and doesn't have him that tore up over her life being possibly in danger. Like, like this really altered the nature of her relationship, and to me actually changed the the what if moment to me and i don't know if this is true for you guys was what if he cared more about his relationship with christine than his career as a surgeon well that's absolutely what it was yeah. what if dr strange lost his heart instead of his hands yeah but he never had a heart i guess is my point is like in the sh in the movie he doesn't have a heart until he becomes a sorcerer sorcerer supreme like he's a dick no, absolutely. He was uh, as egotistical. I, I would go so far as to say the what if was what if Dr. Strange cared about somebody else more than himself in, in this mm -hmm. episode, which is really what this was about was his and you got to You know, this is an alternate universe where he's got some accolade for surgeon of the year because he does this procedure successfully. And, you know, that that really didn't happen in the in the in the movie. He saved somebody's life doing a, a, a radical kind of procedure. But. Um, but yeah, I'm with you guys. This was this was kind of a tough episode. To it's not that it's bad. It's 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 a damn good episode. But yeah, it's very dark. 
there's nothing that you come out of this thing with any feeling of hope at all. I mean, it's just as bleak and dismal as you can possibly get. Owatu's involvement, and because my wife, it was so ironic, she's like watching this with me. She goes, what is the purpose of the Watcher? I, I said, well, he just kind of observes things. Well, does he get involved? I said, no, he has an oath not to get involved. And here you see him have his first conflict of the series as to do I intervene because he's going to end the universe unless I do something, but he stays true and it predictably goes as bad as it can go. And the cool part about that isn't that Uatu was like, huh, I should probably do something. It was more Dr. Strange like, hey, I can see your ass. Can you help me, please? Yeah. And he's like, nope, nope. They told you. You know what? The, so this is this is the wrestling fan out of me, the wrestling purist out of me uh, coming out. But if you're going to have so many happy finishes, sometimes you got to have some shit. Sometimes things got to go bad to appreciate all the good. And with the exception of one movie in the history of the MCU, uh, Infinity War, every movie ends happy, 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 happy. Even Guardians 2, which ended with the death, ended beautifully with the beautiful funeral. Civil War does not end on a happy note. No, that is that's true. That is, I, that is broken Avengers team and a relationship. But Bucky's getting fixed, and that's a major part. That's a major. That's a, that's a hopeful upturn, but the relationship between Cap and Steve is really the focal point of that movie, You're in right. my opinion. And right. and that that at that point, that is the lowest point of their their trajectory. That's a great His, point. Steve writing a note and Tony knowing that he can make that call, but can't that's a very great point that's a great point i would i would argue that one um yeah i don't i i don't have a problem with it going dark it just it went dark hard and we still have marvel zombies to go like we still haven't hit zombies yet we i don't even know what this next episode is um i can't remember if i've seen what they're setting up for episode five i don't know what it is but i know we got a killmonger tony stark episode coming up yeah I know yep. we got an episode with um, the Guardians as the Avengers because they did the Avengers thing with Gamora and a couple other people, and then the zombies. I think it's only eight episodes this season, right? Just eight. right, which is fine. I, I I actually prefer the shorter series like format. I like these eight episodes. These are very digestible. Uh, funny enough, I know Ray is of the type that is like, I wait till midnight. When it hits at midnight, I'm sitting there refreshing the Disney Plus app so that I can get it and watch it right away. I'm similar to that. So I have to be into my office by 8.30 a.m. every morning. I wake up at 6, and while eating my breakfast, I watch. I do this on Wednesday mornings, and I do this on Friday mornings because on Wednesday mornings, I watch What If on Friday mornings, I'm watching Ted Lasso. And so I'm, I'm right there with you, Ray, to an extent. Good but man. yeah, I, here, here's the other thing that I, I've noticed. And I don't know if you noticed this too. I can't remember the name of the creature, but the tentacle monster was back mm-hmm. from the first one. From episode one. Yep. First episode from episode one. Starro. No, it's not Starro. <laughs> no, Starro. Um, and I can't remember what it is. But that, to me, doesn't feel unintentional. And I'll be interested to see if it continues to be a thread as we deal with these multiversal things. I don't think that What If exists as part of the overarching MCU storyline 
yet. I, I don't necessarily feel that. This still does feel like a what if. Um, but up Ching. But I wonder if they're priming us for some new characters that we may see in an MCU series, in an MCU movie, by just sort of floating the idea out there on a show like What If. Thoughts on that, Dave? Well, I mean, I mentioned it last week, whether I thought that they could use What If as a vehicle to introduce stuff like the X-Men or, or mutants or something like that. And Ray basically told me I was dumb as fuck forever thinking that. And, and respectfully, I, yeah, respectfully, respectfully you told me that, but uh, you know, this episode to me, they, they could, they could still dabble. I think they, I think this is definitely kind of dangling in front of us. Dr. Strange's uh, whatever he fucks with time, things go wrong here you see what happens here we're gonna see it happen again in spider-man no way home because that's really it's kind of a time time fuck that he's doing and peter interrupts him and everything goes off the rails from there but it it does seem like they're trying to tell us that you know okay you guys got lucky in endgame with all these pin particles and and everything lining up and even that didn't go so well because look black widow's dead but i think they are kind of telling us that this whole concept of manipulating timelines um, and things like that. And time has just become such a central element to the MCU ever since Endgame. You know, you look at everything in Loki was involving timelines, the TVA. Now you've got Doctor Strange messing with this. We know it's coming in No Way Home. We know there's a whole Ant-Man dealing with quantum something or other. Kang's floating around out there. So time, to me, has become the central focus of the MCU at this point. And they've done a good job at conditioning us that way. So, yeah, well, I mean, go ahead, Ray. Well, I was, was going to say no different, no different thing. The cosmic universe kind of got really big towards the end of phase three. Time has kind of become the background, if you will, for the majority of uh, episode for the majority of phase four. To your question, Patrick, I don't think so, only because personally I'd be massively disappointed. The reason I say that, I think I've mentioned this guys to you, mentions to you guys personally, is so much of the fun of being a fan of the MCU or superhero movies in general or comic book movies in general is the castings. So to see somebody show up with a voice who it might not even be their actual voice without seeing them for the first time on the big screen, and the big screen doesn't have to necessarily be a movie, it could be a TV show, right? Like we're gonna see Miss Marvel for the first time on her TV show and things of that nature. But I would be personally disappointed, although I don't put it past them, because the beauty of what if is, and you kind of you alluded to it a little earlier, the first everything's gotten progressively darker, but this is the first episode that affected everything. And I know you could argue that Thanos not killing the world affects everything too. Absolutely does. But that was really relegated to its own thing. This man destroyed the whole universe. Like the movie in the show ended with black. The Sopranos were back. Like it, it completely changed everything. So I don't know if what if will end up being canon in terms of this is really happening in the multiverse proper, but at least things are starting to matter. And so if they were to do like say slide out of Wolverine or slide out a uh, Reed Richards or something, I would be disappointed. I'd still pop for it, but I'd rather see them do that the more traditional way where we know it matters because there's so many things floating around that we don't know that that matters or not. For example, 
in the trailer for Spider-Man No Way Home. People think that might be Charlie Cox's Daredevil. If Daredevil's in it, does the his, Netflix his, his shows His forearms, matter? Ray. His forearms. Get it right. Exactly. His forearms. Charlie Cox find um, that narrative, too. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Clark Gregg might be popping back up again. Like, there's so many, especially with the Coulson episode of last week. So there's so much that we're questioning, does it actually still matter based in this new world? I'd rather them at least do it in a place where we know for sure it matters on an actual proper show or movie. So I agree with you in the sense of kind of these major Marvel touchstone characters. Like, I don't want to see Wolverine introduced in What If. Shumagorath, this multiverse interdimensional being that is currently appeared twice in a multi-dimensional series. That's the sort of creature and character that I think benefits from an introduction like this. Like nobody knows who the fuck Shumagorath is. Like I had to go, I literally had to look it up to, to find out. But if you keep teasing this thing in what if that primes an audience that may not be familiar so that when they finally see Shumagorath pop yeah. up and see the multiverse of madness or, and I'm not saying this is a thing that is going to happen. That's but it one, makes sense. one is a character. that's not portrayed by an actor. It's, it's something that, you know, it does, it does, it is sentient. It does have a voice. It does speak. It, you know, it can, it can be brought in, in, in a, you know, it's not going to show up in the Eternals or anything like that. It can be brought in. And I think that's, fine in a way that's a it's a it's an easy way to prime an audience to accept that and be ready for it we've already seen Go him ahead. in the disney universe he's pirates of the they're caribbean cracking. dead man's chest they're, they're, <laughs> right, the crack see, now, the kraken's the same damn thing we're, we're having this conversation we're talking about a real thing and you talk about some stupid franchise with drunk johnny depp so why you gotta the multiverse is real. Sir, that's right. right. I'm just saying, if they want to do live action, all they got to do is borrow the creature from fucking pirates, throw him in there. It's uh, the same concept. Lots of tentacles. Ray knows. I'm, Ray go. knows I'm right. Hey. Uh, you're some. You're something. All right. So shout out to, shout out to Davy Jones gonna, being the the main. He's the he's gonna be the big bad in Captain America Four. Davy Jones. There you go. There you go. We're we're gonna on that note close the book on this chapter of what did we call it patrick fest is that is that patrick what this fest. is Pat Pat fest. Fest. it's like a music festival but... pet fest number 95 we will close that off we're going to take our second commercial break and then hit a ton of news around the nerdosphere as well as talk a little dc fandom you are listening to bandwagon nerds on the chair shot radio network a part of the chairshot.com Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Hey folks, PC Tony here. Thanks to our new partnership with Angry Lemonade, you can save 10% on physical products and digital commissions using the promo code CHAIRSHOT. Head to angrylemonade.net to check out their amazing catalog of products and services. Use the promo code CHAIRSHOT to save 10%. That's angrylemonade.net. Are you looking for the newest and hottest in the world of pro wrestling? 
Then check out the amazing action on powerslam.tv, the biggest indie pro wrestling channel in the world. Get over 6,000 hours of the best events from over 150 of your favorite promotions from 20 different countries around the globe. Brands like Progress Wrestling, Evolve Wrestling, Combat Zone, Defy, PCW Ultra, PWX, Over the Top, Shine, and hundreds of others with fresh content added every day for only $5.99 per month. Get your free trial today at powerslam.tv. Go to powerslam.tv, promo code ChairShot. Get your free month. Again, that's powerslam.tv, promo code ChairShot. TheChairShot.com. Always use your head. Okay, fellas. So now that we've spent all this time talking about how wonder the, wonderful these uh, Disney shows are, let's uh, let's delve into the various ways Disney has been a bunch of douchebags. And I'm going to start with a short story that I shared with you guys that you kind of poo-pooed on a little bit um, because you think I'm obsessed with the Muppets. But there was a there was an article that was published on io9.com of an interview that Frank Oz gave where he shared that back in 2007 Disney after purchasing the Muppets franchise and everything that came with it were like thanks but no thanks we don't want you as part of the the Muppet family anymore and I was very surprised by this revelation I was very disappointed in this revelation and I think because for me, and I I love the Muppets, I've made no secret about my love of these characters. I think for me it's because Frank Oz not only is this persona that is connected to those characters, like he's the voice of Miss Piggy, for example. He's the he was the primary puppeteer of, of Miss Piggy. But between him and Dave Goles, uh, who is the voice of Gonzo. And the man himself, Jim Henson, Frank Oz was the Muppets. And to say, no, we're not interested in you. And that's just his work with, you know, Jim Henson Studios. The man is one of the great, in my opinion, geniuses in film that we have today. Um, And is a treasure that we're going to miss when he's gone. And so I was really caught off by that. And so wanted to get your thoughts on, on yeah, the departure of Frank Oz. Or the, the just the learning that Frank Oz was told that he could not be uh, a part of this family. Dave, I'll start with you. Yeah, it's a little surprising to see that there's, I mean, <laughs> they're Muppets. So I didn't really think there was too many different ways of interpreting the approach to these characters. But apparently... I was way off on that because Disney's way of approaching the Muppets apparently conflicts radically with Frank Oz's way of interpreting and portraying the Muppets so much so to the point that, yeah, he's not involved with whatever they're doing with, with the Muppets. I, I, I mean, I, I love the Muppets when I was a kid growing up, they were fantastic. One of the things that they've, recently changed to Disney's California Adventures. They did away with the Muppets 3D thing, and they, I don't even remember what the hell they put in in its place, but it's not anywhere near as cool as what the Muppets were. But yeah, a little surprising to see that one of the more, you know, the the voice behind Yoda 
and, and all that kind of stuff is is been quasi blacklisted by Disney. That's a, a little surprising to hear that. Here, here's another thing that I thought was really interesting. He did he did do Yoda in the new Star Wars movies. He, he Jedi, did he yeah. did and, and Rise of Skywalker, and they actually used archived Yoda voice footage for the Force Awakens. So his voice, like, and I think it's such a distinctive voice, was there. Um, so I, I guess not completely removed yet enough that they're like, we don't want you to contribute. Ray, what were your thoughts? I know you're not as big into the Muppets and, and Frank Oz as maybe I am. Uh, but I do, after that, I'm going to talk about why I think this guy's a genius and why I think it was a mistake. Well, <clears throat> actually, to be fair, you're one of the biggest Muppet fans that I've ever met. And I'm not saying that it, from a negative standpoint. Like, it's cool. Um, I grew up with the Muppets. Exactly. I grew up with Muppets, but I grew up with Muppet Babies. Um, that was a big show for me as a kid growing up, which gave me a level of appreciation for the Muppets as I got older. Um, and I saw them as the actual act. My question is, first and foremost, it's, it, it's clearly foul. I don't know who's in the wrong here. Clearly, the, I, you always think the big company's in the wrong when it's an issue between a company and a content creator and someone as legendary as Frank Oz is. And I don't know what it is that he just can't deal with that's involving this. That's very weird and kind of ominous, if you will. But my bigger and, and to that point, money talks. They'll get back together eventually. That's just how these things work. We Maybe. never thought George Lucas would be, back, would be back and George Lucas came back. So but. My question, my bigger question is, and I don't mean to offend in any way, but is is there a place in the world in 2021 for the Muppets? Have they not have they not kind of outstayed their welcome? And I don't mean that from a negative standpoint. I no. just don't know that that style works in the greater populace in 2021. I remember they had the show on ABC about three or four years ago. And I put it on the DVR series record because, hey, the Muppets, that's going to be cool. It's not going to be kid-friendly. It's going to be, like, a little more adult and have some fun with it and whatnot. And the first couple episodes, I was into it. And after that, I never watched another episode because I just don't think it fit anymore. And you can't drastically change them because it's not the Muppets anymore. Here's here's my response. I do think there's a place for the Muppets in in... in entertainment i think there's a place for puppetry in entertainment just like i think that that i agree with that just just like i think there's a place for you know animation stop motion animation uh these are art forms that i think still have a place in the world and i you know i would be crushed if they were lost the thing that made and i'm going to talk about the muppet show specifically made the muppet show special is the same thing that makes a lot in my opinion was the same thing that made a lot of Pixar movies special um, and a lot of animation with adult overtones special because if you watch the Muppet show, the Muppet show is a children's show with adult sensibilities. And that is what makes it special and unique. And where I think Frank Oz, you, you asked kind of what the break was in that interview that he talked, he talks about, Part of why he thinks they didn't want him is because he wasn't always going to be purely the Disney model. And I think that the Disney-fying of the Muppets was a concern. 
And you even look at the two films that were made, the one that was directed by Jason Siegel that was then immediately followed by the one with Tina Fey. It mm-hmm. lost. Like, Jason Siegel clearly loved the source material. And when he built that movie, it was very much in the same vein as the original Muppet movie of the great Muppet caper and the Muppets take Manhattan. The second one's not so much. Second one loses a little bit. That show that you talked about, it kind of starts with that adult sensibility, but it doesn't end, or it doesn't it doesn't keep it going. Uh, Jim Henson himself, the mind that was behind all of uh, of those original things. If you go look at his original work before they even started with the Muppet Show, it's not it's very adult. It's very dark. Like we're blowing Muppets up, and it's funny, and it's, it's very slapstick, but yet it's also very grown up and adult and, and strong in tone, and that's. Where I think that with Disney owning this franchise, that if if they're they're going to make it their thing, it's not going to be the same, and it won't feel like a place other than something for little kids. And that was something. If you've ever followed the life of Jim Henson, he fought hard. He vehemently believed in puppetry as an adult art form. The Dark Crystal, which you know, which he made in the eighties, like. I loved that as a kid. It's it's violent. It's scary. It's dark. It has, yet at the same time, it has joy and beauty. And Netflix, when they got the rights to make that Dark Crystal series, was the best stuff I've seen out of Jim Henson Studios in since the Dark Crystal. And it was a shame that it got canceled because it was so amazingly good. And I don't know why it got canceled, because it got good views. It got good watches. I, I think Disney had something to do with it. And I think that's where Frank Oz is. Frank Oz, his brand of humor, isn't going to fit with what Disney wants to do. It makes sense. It's disappointing, but it makes sense. Right. Um, Here, here's the other thing I think they're losing in, in a mind of Frank Oz. I'm just going to go over his directing credits. So 2021, he has a movie called um, In In and of Itself. Uh, don't know that it's out yet. I can't find it. He did Death at a Funeral, The Stepford Wives, The Score, Bowfinger, In and Out, The Indian in the Cover, House Sitter, What About Bob? He directed Tunney's favorite film, What About Bob? Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, low-key underrated film, and Little Shop of Horrors, which was his first departure from Jim Henson Studios and, and him striking out on his own independent of Jim. He's a he's a he's a great mind. He's a hell of a director. He's only done he's only been a producer in a couple of different things, but he's he's phenomenal. Oh, Andy Andy co-directed The Dark Crystal with Jim Henson when he worked with Jim. That's a you, mind you, I don't think you want to lose. You know, uh, it was a, maybe ten years ago when I was introduced to quick tangent, but you'll you'll see why I'll go here. It was about 10 years ago I was introduced for the first time to Jim Dunham. Yeah. And when someone described Jim Dunham to me, my exact words were, the fuck? No, I'm not watching that. And then I was stuck working at at the retail store I was working at and doing overnights. And you can't leave the building in overnight for lunch. So we're stuck eating lunch in the break room. And it was on. And I that's one of my favorite stand-up specials ever. And it made me realize... That sometimes, sometimes you need to get out of your own way when it comes to things like 
ventriloquism, ventriloquy, or puppeteering, or things of that nature. So maybe the best bet for Disney is just get the fuck out of their own way. Because if you own this product that has as, as a legendary a product as it gets, you want to make money out of it, right? Sesame Street is killing right now, still to this day making money. Now, granted, they have a niche, but they still make boatloads of money. You go to HBO Max, they have their own sub uh, channel. Maybe just get out of their own way, man. Maybe that's just the best thing for them to do. Maybe. Dave, any last thoughts on Frank Oz, the Muppets, Disney, before we continue to bash Disney in another uh, topic? I think sure. Ray's comments about getting the fuck out of their own way is a perfect segue into where we're heading. And I agree. It's like, you know, if it ain't broke, why fix it? This is an NXT, for God's sake. Anyway, go ahead. Come on, man. Come <laughs> on, man. Low blows and stuff like that ain't cool, bro. Okay. So let's. Let's continue the Disney bashing. We're going to segue over to what I think is the most consequential lawsuit in entertainment in a long, long time. As we're starting to see some more layers come out as a result of Scarlett Johansson suing Disney for releasing the Black Widow film on Disney Plus as well as in theaters. And two articles, stories that I that, that shared out, one by me, one by Ray. The first one is, is that ScarJo got some support as Disney writers are now also who have been seeking royalties are now throwing their support behind Scarlett Johansson. So not just not not just fellow actors, not not other people in the industry. Now we got writers and writers for the company that's being sued, getting Scarlett Johansson's back. And then in the Russo brothers, in an article from the Wall Street Journal that Ray shared, um, implying that their future in directing another Marvel project could be in question as they negotiate the possibility of what what their cut would be should their next Marvel film follow this hybrid model. It just keeps growing, guys. It just keeps growing. Ray, why don't why don't we start with you this time? You you kick it off, and then Dave, you follow in with your thoughts. I think the Russo brothers having reservations is the most damning thing to come of this. Now, Scarlet being one of the major faces of Marvel is big, but every studio has an issue every now and then with one of their performers. That happens. But one could argue that, with the exception of Kevin Feige, there is no more important people to the history of the MCU than the Russos. They are behind um, the Infinity War movies, the Civil War movie. There's so so much of of the MCU as we know it from at the end of Phase One going on is because of them or wrapped around them. So. For them to be at the point where they're like, remember, at the point they were like, we're retired, we're done. But then they had interest. They were interested in secret wars. They were interested in doing this or that. So to have them be in negotiations and be like, nah, son, I don't like what's going on with this. We don't know how it's going to affect us. It's massive. It's, 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 it's super damning. And I just looked up the revenue for fiscal year 2020. Dave, they generated... 65.39 billion dollars 
And to and I under, I understand that you're not making the same revenue necessarily because in 2019 they had they they uh had a revenue of 69.61 billion. So they're down 4 billion uh, that year, right? Pandemic matters. But you're not losing so much money to the point where you can keep lowballing these people that are integral to the success of your company. It is maddening to think that just and it's not just one person too, because concurrently, while Scarlett was having her issues, Emma Stone was having her issues, but they broke her off a bag and they they, they handled that. Scarlett not going out that easy, and uh, for the Marvel Universe proper, and for the it for the bigger scope of Disney Studios from a from a production standpoint, they in trouble. See, I don't exactly see it that way though i think i think what the russos are doing is very smart right now they are reacting to a changing environment they see what's going on with the scarlett johansson lawsuit and they're like in the middle of negotiating like you're saying ray to do further projects for marvel and like oh hold on dog we got this whole new dynamic over here that you're dealing with right now we need to renegotiate it's very smart on their part and we talked about it when we first discussed the scar lawsuit is that Moving forward, as these writers, actors, performers, everybody involved in the process is um, doing their contracts, you have to keep an eye on, on the streaming aspect of things and how that is altering the market, how that is changing the dynamics. The Russos recognize that and say, hey, look, we are not going to do shit for you unless we address the elephant in the room, which is... You got people suing you for royalties that you didn't pay them when you acquired all these properties that now you we understand you've settled a lot of those. You've got Scarlett Johansson, who you have come up with some creative interpretations on their contractual language to try and get you out of this mess. Nah, dog, we're not playing that. We're going to negotiate up front. So in that respect, I think it, 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 it's. I don't know if it's if it's bad news for Disney. It's just putting everybody on notice. We recognize the landscape has changed and we are going to approach this differently up front. There's not going to be any of this bullshit. We're all going to understand each other's where we're coming from, the contingencies that if you're going to go in this direction of releasing things straight to Disney Premier Access, then you know, we want our cut of that and here's how we're going to allocate that. So I, I think it's very smart on their part. Um I, I did notice as one of the articles that it looks like Disney's really pushing for this lawsuit to get out of the courts and go into private arbitration, which is again, something else that we talked about when this first happened, that they don't want this anywhere near a jury or out of the public eye. I guarantee you that this is just the first step. They're going to settle this. This will never see a courtroom. It'll be something will move. It'll, it'll all get ironed out. Scarlet will get her money. Disney will move on. And, we will move past this. But yeah, it's important. Like Patrick saying, one of the most important lawsuits in Hollywood in recent memory, because it, it is addressing a shift in the landscape that the pandemic has brought on. And then you're moving forward from there with everybody. Now, now you don't have these, these, you know, these stuff catching people by surprise, like the black widow lawsuit did and people not realizing, Hey, here's how the dynamic changed. We didn't really allocate for this. Now everybody's going to be on the same page. So I think it's it's important and it's good for the industry to move forward and, and to avoid these sort of situations. This lawsuit was going to happen one way or the other. 
whether it was Scarlett Johansson, whether it was Tom Cruise, whether it was any number of people who have talked about being either surprised, caught off guard, just angry. Mark Wahlberg. Mark Wahlberg. Yep. That's another one. So I have, I have said since this happened and Dave, you, you just agreed with it. I uh, said the same thing. Necessary lawsuit. This is a necessary lawsuit because we are setting the precedent of how contracts will be negotiated for the power players and the people who profit from royalties and in, in, in this new service, in this new streaming era. And so our content creators finally, as you know, as as Mr. Platt likes to say, they're taking their step and saying, we got to negotiate this. We got to figure this out. And we're going to set that like an industry standard is on its way of, to being set. And then it'll be on to the next innovation that'll fuck with the industry standard. And we'll be back here again in 10 to 15 years with another conversation. No, and you raise a great point that people who aren't, aren't lawyers or don't follow legal stuff that well they get trapped into the phraseology of frivolous lawsuits and they think every lawsuit is frivolous there are some that are damn near essential and if you understand what litigation really is this was an essential lawsuit these two parties weren't going to see eye to eye unless they were forced into this confrontation which isn't like it's not like a fist fight or something it's like lawyers saying hey look man we got we got a different landscape that we need to address we need to do it in, in the litigation process and get all this stuff out in the open so that you get neutral people who are looking at this saying, here's the pros and cons of all this stuff. So, yeah, I agree with you 100%. This was an essential, necessary lawsuit that had to happen to bring this situation to a head so it could be addressed so you can avoid further bullshit going on in the future. Right. So, if, sorry, Patrick. No, so, we know that Emma Stone settled for 20, for 20 mil. And she agreed to do Corella too. We, I think, all three of us are agreed that it's not gonna go. It's, it's gonna go to arbitration at some point. It's gonna be settled out of court, right? We all agree with that. I, I think they'll mediate it before they go to arb- arbitration. Is kind of like a trial. It's just not in front of a judge or right. jury. But I think, yeah, I think it'll end up in mediation before you get to the arbitration process, and they'll cut a deal there. That's my prediction. What 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 are we thinking numbers wise? We thinking fifty mil? You think she can get as high as a hundred mil? I, it sounds ridiculous, but given if they can, if just I'm just saying, given the landscape, if they can prove the wages she lost based on if they would have done this, based on a comparable time, this movie would have made a billion dollars. And call me crazy, I think it would have made a billion easy if it came out the landscape in 2018 instead of 2022, 2021. I, I mean, I don't know if it would have made a billion dollars. I, I think. I don't that because that's Black Panther money, and I don't know that I was going to make Black Panther money. I think it was gonna. I think it was going to do very, very well. I think it may have come close. I just, I don't, I don't know that I completely buy. Maybe it would have. I, I don't know. The, the uh, bottom was seven fifty, right? Can we agree with that? The bottom would have been seven fifty. Well, yeah, I would say that's fair. But Tom, it's going to make. It was going to make more than Ant Man. Yeah, right. Tom's going to make more. Tom Cruise has a line in A Few Good Men. It's not about what I know, it's what I can prove. And like you're saying, Ray, it's what they can prove. If they can empirically prove here's how much she would have lost without it being too speculative, then yeah, she'll make make what she should have got. But it's going to be awfully hard to prove that. You got a lot of variables that are in the hopper right now. 
And I know, I know I'm in the minority on this, but I also just don't think that the movie itself was of the same quality of some of these movies that have made a billion dollars out of the MCU. Like it's a good, not great Marvel movie in my opinion. And so a good, not great Marvel movie. Yeah. $750 million is probably the baseline there. So. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, real quick. We also know that Marvel movies, good, bad, or indifferent are about the moment. And right. this was absolutely a moment movie. Sure, but it was a moment that was about six years too late. So, well, that's facts. That's facts. One hundred percent. That's and that's another piece of it. So, at the end of the day, this is a shifting landscape. This lawsuit is being brought to the fore and is helping us adjust and helping the movie industry adjust to the shifting landscape. I'm going to talk about a different landscape shift and transition into our last article before we talk about DC fandom. And that is a, a news item that hit on September 1st in which Nielsen, their national ratings accreditation was suspended by the media rating council. And so for those of you who don't know, Nielsen forever has been the metric for television as to whether or not a television show is successful. And this has been a long, like this, this the last couple of years, this has been a long standing discrepancy from Nielsen's numbers to what's actually being viewed. And a lot of the talk has been about Nielsen's changed protocols resulting in an undercounting of TV audience. And and it's been proven that they're undercounting. And Nielsen is like, we're going to fix it. Networks have not been happy. And there's just yeah, – to the point where Nielsen indicated that they, they intended to seek a hiatus for its national ratings so it could try to figure out and upgrade their ratings with less public scrutiny. Media's had enough. And the Media Rating Council is just a, the latest – in an organization saying, you know, within the ranks of television, that that it's not good enough to try and fix it. Your your we your numbers aren't reliable, and we're not going to use them as a metric for our televisions, uh, for for our determination for things like ads and success. So, again, huge deal, huge shift in the landscape of this. You know, ultimately results in the end of the Nielsen ratings. Wrestling, wrestling fans, as we're on a wrestling network, we we loves us some ratings talk. But I think for us here on the bandwagon, I think it's important as well because a lot of our shows that are on television, ratings are important. Ratings get paid attention to, and and end up, you know, that's how you get ad revenue. That's how you stay on good time slots, and that's how the 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 bread is buttered, so to speak. So. Thoughts on Nielsen's slow decline as the source for ratings in television. Dave. Not surprising. I mean, like you mentioned, Pat, shifting landscape. The industry has shifted more towards, you know, and, and this goes back to the issue of tracking streaming numbers and coming up with a reliable way of doing that. And Nielsen certainly wasn't doing that. And so this is kind of a... Uh, you know, not surprising that the, that it's gone in this direction, that that you really, you know, when everything was on cable and, and like you mentioned, pro wrestling. Yeah. During the Monday Night War, Nielsen ratings were it. That was the biggest 
metric that you were looking at for 83 weeks or whatever the case may be. Uh, but that hasn't really been the case. I, I mean, I don't know how you guys feel, but streaming, like the shows we're watching are, are almost more um, word of mouth and, and just kind of like, hey, man, have you checked? And we do it on the show all the time. Have you checked this out? I really recommend this. Tony recommending a t- 25 different cooking shows, you know, that sort of thing. So it, it, it it's it's not Nielsen wasn't capturing that metric properly. So you needed to make a change. And I, I, I'm not really surprised to see this direction taking form you know it it just seems like that's it was inevitable when you're not getting quality feedback from one of your most trusted agencies that it's time to look elsewhere and that's what it seems like media is saying you guys aren't getting this done anymore we need a different way of compiling this data to realize what's really happening and if you guys can't do it then see you later and that's kind of where we are this uh this brings me great joy and it brings me great joy <laughs> it does it does for a number of reasons. First and foremost, as a wrestling fan, the ratings rhetoric is disgusting and it's gotten so bad. Tribalism has gotten a whole other level. But just from a from, from a regular perspective, how many good shows have we lost because their Nielsen ratings weren't what we thought what what they thought they should have been? Not that it wasn't. Arrested Development is one of the best shows that from uh, creatively or critically maybe ever. But it lost. It, it got canceled because it didn't reach hit the ratings based on Nielsen and Nielsen feels a lot like political polls to me. Like 75% of Americans believe that the sky is blue. I didn't take that poll. <laughs> I didn't take that poll. So how is that real? So, you know, I, I've never ever met a human being that has a Nielsen box. I know they exist. They have to. Well, first time ever in life. Hi, thank you, Mr. Nielsen. First time ever. No, I actually talked about this on the on the Greg DeMarco show because when when we talked about ratings, I was I was part of a Nielsen family for a brief period of time. And that's actually kind of cool because much like the Family Guy episode, you feel like you run TV, you know, because right. what I watch matters. I, I I literally had friends who'd be like, "Can you just watch this or in some way like?" <laughs> because they, they cared about their shows, like it was kind of funny. Um, and even then, like at the time the emerging technology that they were dealing with was TiVo and Mm -hmm. DVR and how that impacted stuff. And so Mm -hmm. the thing about the Nielsen ratings is it's a projection. It's Mm -hmm. a projection based on a small sample size, which is what it's what polling is like your, your description of polling is, is very, very accurate to what television ratings are. It's based on the data of a small select group and then projecting that out to determine a number, give or take. And so when Dave Meltzer, because he's our favorite example. Yep, I'm going to use their names. It's fine. Tony Tony would say that if he was here. I'm just kidding. When they say say AEW got 900,000 viewers, that's a projection based on a percentage of boxes that recorded that they watched AEW during a certain time period. And then that projects out over different segments and times. And so it's not a wholly inaccurate um, metric, but it, you know, that's, that's, that's how that estimate gets done. And there's a lot of things that come into play. The households that are there, they skew white. They try to get a representative population, but it's not always a representative population. Uh, it's the same thing when you look at it's, it's basically exit polling for television. Except instead of a instead of a public official being voted on, it's a television show, 
And there, so there are. There are just a lot of flaws with the Nielsen rating system. Kudos to them for admitting and trying to find a solution for it. But it's they, the answer is not there, and it's not coming fast enough. So I'm intrigued for what's next because I don't have an answer as to what's next and what the change will then mean moving forward. So this from, could be fun. From from a from a ratings projection, I don't know what you could do. I don't know how you do it. But right. social media projections are about the closest we get because right. the more someone talks about it or searches for something on social media shows, the more that somebody's interested in something. And we watch this is something that the populace doesn't seem to understand. We ingest entertainment differently. Perfect example. How much stuff I've been on this. I've been I've had the pleasure and the honor of being a part of this show now for what, four months has been longer than that. Maybe long. It's got to be longer. A than year, that, right? Ray. Oh, damn near a year been, now. Well, that, <laughs> where was I? Right. But for a year. And how many things have you guys told me over the year that I should watch that I haven't watched or haven't heard of or had the chance to watch? Flash Gordon is a joke, but still, that's one of them. And there's so much I know about so many of these things that I have never watched and may never watch, but I know enough about them because of you guys in conversation to feel like I know enough to talk about it, right? That's so much of our entertainment now is ingested that way. We, we go back to wrestling. You don't have to watch the entire three hours of Raw to know what happened. You can read the results. You can watch the YouTube shows. You can t- see what people tweeted about and have a fully formed idea of what happened on the show. So you don't have to physically sit at your TV at 7 o'clock p.m. Central Time and turn on USA Network and sit with your eyes and not move from your seat for three hours to get it. The world is different now. So I think those social media um, uh, re- um, results or what, not results, but um, ratings and things of that nature, or the Google Trends, which Google Trends is not the greatest, but it's it's fairly indicative. Those are, I think, very, very worthwhile in looking at what is important or what matters, you know? So I, I think we have something that can get us where we want to go in the time being until we figure out how we're going to integrate streaming, how we're going to do the, the plus three ratings for people who DVR something and watch it three days later for finding out a way to quantify how many people watch something illegally through an illegal stream. They'll, we'll, before we get there, all you got to do is just do a search and you'll find it. Google search it. Social, YouTube search it, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. The numbers will give you an idea of what's happening. Yeah, uh, it's it's going to be fun. It's it's a big deal. It's a huge deal for television. It's a huge deal for entertainment. Speaking of huge deals for entertainment, last October, DC won the virtual conference contest with DC Fandom. And that success has parlayed into bringing it back again in October. As of the moment I am speaking this, 40 days, 21 hours, 20 minutes, and 49 seconds away. Now, by the time you hear this, 
to be 24 hours from now, it'll be even closer. But I wasn't sure what DC fandom was going to be like. It was basically a an eight-hour-long DC Comic-Con panel that you were able to watch virtually for 48 hours. Or maybe it was 24. I can't remember. It was 24, 24. or 48. 24. 24, that's right. It, it, ran, it ran the same eight hours three times. That's what it was. It was, eight, it was an eight-hour panel. And you could catch you could catch various clips. They're bringing it back. They're rolling it back again. This is a terrific decision by DC. And I think we're going to get even better content just looking at this lineup. So I'll start with you, Ray. One, how excited are you for the return of DC FanDome? And what are you not going to miss out of your viewing? Because I'm already assuming you're going to view DC FanDome. What is it that you're going to make a point to catch when you watch this over the 24 hours? Well, I'm super excited because one of the most fun things about being a nerd or a fan is the conjecture of what's next and trying to not just understand what's next, but to try to figure out or guess what's next, the speculation of things of that nature. So these kind of cons really are integral to what we do as nerds to stuff like on the show. So, yes, I'm super excited. I want to know what's going on. And DC has a lot of really interesting projects coming up in the next year or two or three. Um, The most interesting for me is the advent of the Naomi show. If you guys aren't uh, aware of, if you don't read DC comics, actual physical comics, Naomi is a property that has blown up almost essentially to the way Miss Marvel did in the 2010s, like out of nowhere. And Naomi has gone from just something Bendis tried to do to now she's one of the major members of the Justice League in a span of like four or five years to the point where they hotshotted a TV show. And I'm interested to see the idea behind it, who's casted, what they're going to do. Also, um, you know, I'm, I'm a big proponent of the shows that came from DC Universe that are now on HBO Max, things like Titans, things like the new Harley Quinn season, Harley Quinn and uh well we're spoiler free so i can say this harley quinn and uh poison ivy are an item now where we go with that doom patrol coming up with that and most importantly young justice outsiders talk about a show that nielsen killed nielsen said nobody watched they've come back from the dead twice netflix redid them and they died again and then now DC Universe slash Warner Brothers and HBO Max brought them back. It's amazing, right? You know what I'm saying? That this this show is, people care about it so much. I'm interested in that. Also, I want to see where the movies are going. The new Aquaman movie, the new Flash movie, the new Batman movie, things so of that nature. So basically when I said, name one thing you were interested in watching, you're just going to give me my rundown of DC fandom. So Pretty much. Nothing to share. And 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 shout and I, I, as I as I hand it off to my my big brother Dave, shout out to the new games coming out, the Gotham Knights, the kind of the next installation in the Arkham Knight series. Even though it's over, it's different, but it's the next installation. And the Suicide Squad held a paid game, which, as wrestling fans, our good friend Samoa Joe plays the voice of King Shark. Very nice. All right, Dave. So out of everything that. Ray just listed since he listed the entire show. I got more. I got more. Wait, 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 where, where are you keying in 
right. for DC fandom? Well, I think I'm more on the movie side. Uh, I, I'm curious what they're doing with Aquaman because Ray and I have talked privately about this that, well, actually I take that back. We've all talked about it. There's great concern on my part that they are underestimating this Amber Heard backlash situation and that that could bite them in the ass. So I want to see something about that. If I had to list one thing I'm most interested in, it's the flash. We didn't get much of that last year. We got a little snippet of nothing. Um, this year, because I think if they are going in a direction of trying to reboot the DCEU, which I'm not sure I even agree with that anymore at this point, but if they are going in that direction and you know that there's some Flashpoint Paradox sort of thing going on with this movie because we've got Ben Affleck and Michael Keaton both playing Batman, so that tells me we've got a multiversal situation. That's what I'm most interested in. And of course, I do want to see what's ne- what the new Batman trailer is going to look like uh, Matt Reeves vision, which isn't connected to anything in the DCEU, but still has a lot of people interested. Cause that's like, you know, th- some things I've talked about with other DC fans is like, you know, if DC's just dead set on not doing a continuity like the MCU, then maybe they're better off just kind of doing trilogies, self-sustaining trilogies, like the dark Knight trilogy was like they're doing with Aquaman, like they're doing with Shazam. You guys don't want to do a world encompassing, you know, because like we're not going to talk Shang Chi on this episode, but all we can say is that universe is expanding exponentially, and DC doesn't need to try and match that. Nor should, do I think they should anymore at this point in time. But you can do like starting off with this first Robert Pattinson Batman. You could run a trilogy like that and have it be every bit as epic as the Dark Knight trilogy was. So I'm those are the ones I'm really most interested in. I, I would love if we get a Black Adam trailer. I'm not holding my breath for it, but we'll see. So no thunder for me because I'm actually, that's the only franchise out of the DC cinematic, anything that I've enjoyed so far. I'm intrigued by the Robert Pattinson, Batman, uh, Aquaman. I, I liked the original Aquaman film with Jason Momoa, even if it was just underwater Thor. And that was really my problem is, is like, Oh look, it's Thor underwater. Like it, it, I'm just more Black Manta, please, because that was my favorite. Like he was the most compelling part of that that movie, in my opinion. Far better villain than your bland uh, was it Jason Patrick or not Jason Patrick? Um, Patrick Wilson. Uh, but yeah, I think we will get some footage of Black Adam. Uh, we got concept art last time. I think that we know that filming has been taking place, so I think we're going to see something there. And then I also hope we get some news out of Shazam Fury of the Gods because I love, and I've made no secret, I've loved Fury uh, Shazam. And filming's nearly finished on that sequel. So it won't take much to put together any some sort of sizzle reel, some sort of information and bit on there to, to get people really you know excited for that film. And I think it's low-key my favorite um, DC effort by Warner brothers uh, that, that they put out there. So those are, those are two that I I'm very much along with a lot of the other stuff that you guys have mentioned. Right. One, one more thing. This not half of the time thing, the but this thing. is, this is, this is important to mention to me because I don't, I was surprised that even Dave knew what, what it was about. There is a comic property called DMZ. 
that uh, is one of my most favorite comics I've read over the past five or so years. And they are much like it's kind of similar in the vein to why is the last man for you, Patrick? And yeah. that is something that's very obscure. But the 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 thought of it being put on the big screen is so cool. And in the world we live in, essentially, DMZ is after the after the second civil war between the Free States armies and the actual USA. Manhattan is a demilitarized zone. And it follows this one dude who's a journalist five years after the war and what happens after that. And it's just so different than anything I've ever read. So that's being produced as a television show. I am geeked for that. So and I don't, we've never mentioned that on the show. So I just think it's cool to kind of put that bug in people's ears. Go go check it out. I promise you. Three three issues in, you'll you'll be buying the volumes. It's so different, and I really enjoy it. So I just wanted that's the if you had to ask me, that's one thing I'm most excited about in general. It's that. Yeah, and it's a Vertigo property, so you know it's going to be. It's like why the last man? They're both Vertigo properties, but have they meant? Did they? Are they going to do anything DMZ related at Fandom? Ray, did you? I didn't see anything about yeah. that. Are they? Okay. Yeah, DMZ is at Fandom. Yeah. Okay. Sweet. So. Here's here's my my kind of wrap up question of this because DC fandom went really well last year, uh, and it had two versions: it had an adult, and then it had a kids DC fandom later on, where they actually brought all the footage back from the the adult adult DC fandom for the kids DC fandom as well. If this goes well a second time around, and I think it will, when do you think Warner Brothers and DC expands this to more than just a day? Or do they keep it that sort of feeling of exclusivity a la Pat Fest and makes it this annual event? I, I think a lot of that depends on if and when San Diego Comic-Con comes back to an actual in-person event. Um, I could see DC wanting to perhaps meld fandom into that whole kind of environment and make it a big mega event. Otherwise, yeah, I, I think if they if they go to like a live in person thing, eventually at some point you'll see it get expanded. At that point, I think one thing, another important factor to mention about Fandom this year, it's free, just like it was last year. And I know there was some talk about last year whether they would charge for it if they came back. They've made the decision not to charge for it, which is brilliant. And I I really hope that we get a second day like we did last year, Pat, where the second day was all this archival deep divey sort of stuff that we really got lost in and and i mean there were some tremendous documentaries the lineup looked like they've got some more stuff than you had time to actually view absolutely it was was obscene here here's my as we we've spent a lot of time talking about shifting landscapes in this second hour of bandwagon nerds is it on is it out of possibility and i don't think it is so this is kind of a loaded question that they don't go back to comic-con in the same way that they have before hold on hear me out in the same way that they have in the past and here's why you look at the amount of major companies that are walking away from san diego comic-con even before the pandemic because disney's walked away the mcu now part of Disney's Expos. Um, I'm trying, like, 
this year's Comic-Con really had a few television show panels, but was much more back to its roots and about comics and not about entertainment. And I wonder with the success of some of these virtual cons that have been put on by DC, have been put on by Disney, I wonder if this doesn't become the trend away and that San Diego Comic-Con starts to slow, like, does is Hall H still going to be a thing? Because it, it wasn't this year. Uh, and, and will it come back in the same way that it had, that it did previously? Or is there an argument for a Disney, for a Warner Brothers, that, hey, we can do our own Hall H, have just as much success, and not have to go through the rigmarole of being a part of San Diego Comic-Con? I think that they will always send something because it is almost at this point just habit and respect for kind of the platform that San Diego Comic-Con has created. But they should never, ever fully integrate everything they do as comic San Diego Comic-Con again, I don't think. Because D23 has shown it's just as big, if not bigger. Yeah, I don't know that we'll ever get a chill-inducing moment at San Diego Comic-Con the way we used to. And the last one that existed was Mahershala Ali showing up when Blade pops up on the screen at the end of the Marvel panel. Like, just even talking about it, I'm like, ooh, ooh. San Diego Comic-Con was becoming bloated and unwieldy even before the pandemic. And you could see that. Because the problem is you've got all this stuff going on and you can't, average person can't even go to this event. You have to, like, go on to SeatGeek or StubHub damn near just to find a ticket for this thing so and there's just too much going on and it was too big and 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 just too hard to manage so i think you know the hall h experience will persist for a while but yeah it'll be different it'll evolve i think uh, when they go back to in-person comic-con hopefully in 2022 will be um will be strimmed down streamlined and and a little bit of a different experience that's my hope i hope they can go back to an in-person next year uh but I, I don't think I think the Hall H thing will persist, you know, but it's it's going to be comparable to like E3. You look at what E3 was a few years ago and how that's kind of evolved now, even before the pandemic with Nintendo saying, no, no, we're not going to do anything with that. We're going to do our own thing. So I yeah. think you got you're going to see well, and you're already seeing you're already seeing that. Right. And and the the cool thing is these other ones are Hall H is so shut down that like people really had to go out of their way to leak it. And it was so exclusive. These other cons, like, they're kind of open. And I know D23 is a thing, but I remember Disney Investor Day, where all day long I was just shouting you, shooting you guys, everything that was popping up. And I feel like that's what fandom is going to end up being closer to more so than D23 is, like, Investor Day, where, like, we got right. this project, this is what's happening. We got this right. project, here's the the uh, the trailer for it. But it's a bit... With all with respect to Hall H and Comic Cons in general, this integrates more fans. You can get directly with the people that all of the people that are supporting your product in a more personal situation than just the three hundred people that can fit in Hall H. It's a more targeted experience too. I mean, Hall yeah. H is every Comic Con's everything. Now you're looking at D twenty three is catering to a certain fan. Fandom yeah. is catering to their fan base. You know, it's almost like coming full circle to the beginning of the episode, talking about festivals. These conferences yep. are not like festivals for 
that specific fan base. Whereas San Diego Comic-Con is just everything under one roof, which is great for one-stop shopping, but you're not going to get that level of immersion that you might otherwise want from a D23 or a fandom. Here's my hope with a strip. If, if what we believe comes to fruition, comes to fruition is that it, it, it then it does create a strip down specifically San Diego and New York comic-con because the two of them, are on different sides of the year. So you get San Diego in the summer, you get New York in the fall. I've attended the New York City Comic Con uh, right around the time that uh, the Avengers was on its ramp up to coming out. And I remember there was this huge display, Stan Lee doing autographs. It was this big deal. But the thing that I love about going to like smaller cons is meeting comic book writers and artists. I want the opportunity to get Brian Michael Bendis's autograph. By the way, author of Naomi, just just throwing that out there. So I want the opportunity to be able to meet some of these people who, you know, were part of my formulation of my fandom for some of these films. And you're right. I think that television properties will still be there. I do think that some of the cinematic stuff will still be there. But if it's stripped down and more accessible to where it's not impossible to get a ticket to Comic-Con – like unless you know somebody or New York Comic Con, unless you know somebody, that's only good for the industry. That's only good for fans. And hopefully that that's where we go from there. So great hour, fellas. And I think the name of this episode really is Shifting Landscapes because we have really spent a lot of time this hour just talking about the shifting landscapes of entertainment, film, and how it impacts us and what we watch. But it's it's time. I haven't played this in a while. So here we go. Is mayonnaise an instrument? Want to go jellyfishing? What am I supposed to do all day while you're at school? Can I use your bathroom? Who's your friend? What does claustrophobic mean? (laughs) You know what the problem is? So, confession, I told this to Dave yesterday that uh, I wasn't going to do Patrick O'Dowd does a question. Uh, but I wanted to play the music, so I, I am not. To, I'm not going to do Patrick O'Dowd does a question today because I I do want to turn kind of a serious eye on on the end of this show and talk about something that we discussed in our chat uh, a few days ago. And, and for those of you, we're gonna we're gonna shift to the wrestling side of things to talk about this for a little bit. And so, as many of you know, if you're a wrestling fan, uh, we lost. Uh, a member of the community uh, this past week in uh, Daphne Unger, also known uh, by her real name, Shannon Spruill. Uh, She tragically passed away and it appears took her own life. And we're not, we're not even going to really talk about, about that uh, in in the sense that, you know, it was very, very sad and and thoughts and prayers to her family. If that's, if that's what you do, uh, because it's it's horrible. But what I did want to talk about was something that really struck me and that we talked about in terms of mental health in general and mental health crises and just sort of the way that the public reacts to these things. And I wanted to be a little bit personal to myself. Uh, so I'm going to speak to to my own experiences. Uh, and, you know, obviously, Dave and, and Ray, you don't have to to do any more or less uh, than, than you want to in, in sort of having this conversation. But anytime something horrible like this happens, the 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 response is oftentimes very, very predictable. 
uh, and is something that we see frequently in that we get a large number of folks that jump onto social media that are connected to this person or in general that kind of put out whether it's a tweet, an Instagram post, a video, whatever the hell it is, that, that says something very much to the effect of, to anyone that's hurting out there, you are loved. If you need help, come talk to me. I'm here. My door is open. Get help. So on and so something to that effect and in that vein. And that is a very important half to an entire picture. And I want to emphasize that while I appreciate that half, it is in no ways a whole. And one of the things that we really got to talking about and that I think is true is that it's very easy to tell people out there that are in crisis that there are folks that are out there that are able to listen and help. However, folks in crisis often really struggle to seek that help because when you're in that place, there's a feeling of hopelessness and a feeling of being trapped and a feeling of what good is it going to do that comes with being where you are. And it takes an amazing amount of fortitude to overcome that, to actually ask for help. And so the one thing that I would like to ask of anybody who talks about you're heard and I'm here for you is to also be cognizant of those that may be struggling and ask them and talk to them directly and ask them if they need help and to actually offer that beyond and I'm out here, come talk to me sort of post. Because I can speak from experience as somebody who has never had ideations of self-harm. So I want to make that clear. I am in no way comparing myself to what Shannon was going through or what anybody else who's going through serious mental health problems to the level of self-harm can go through. I go through heavy heavy bouts of anxiety and depression yearly. You can almost set it on clockwork set it by clock right in the last two months for me are, are at when I'm at my worst and I don't feel like I can talk to anybody about my problems because I feel like I'm a burden to that person or I don't think they're actually going to be able to help me or they're not going to understand what I'm going through or they're not going to care to listen or they're going to think that I'm just being over dramatic or that I'm not really bringing it up and that they don't really get what I'm going through. And unless somebody would have said, do you want to talk to me about it? Or are you in crisis? Or are you in trouble? I would never bring it up. And even if you asked me that question, I might have still been like, no, I'm fine. But I can tell you that when you get when you get somebody out there with some outreach, or even if you just have the right ear, it, it helps, it takes that burden. But as an ally, we have to take that responsibility very seriously and we have to offer ourselves up personally to people as an ally because not everyone's going to come to you and ask for help. Yeah. You want to say something, Dave? I defer to you, sir. That word ally, man, is a... Uh... 
loaded word because it, in theory, is a very beautiful and positive thing. But like anything in theory, it takes practice. And I don't think people really are prepared to live up to the practice of what an ally really means. Because you mentioned this situation and everybody and their mom and their dad and so on and so forth is all about on social media. Hey, uh, RIP, she's, she'll be missed. If you need help, I'm here. I care about you. This is, and then five minutes later, it's back to the jokes and back to the same rigor mole of always. And allyship means you have to, when you're really truly an ally, and this just doesn't just mean for mental health and mental illness. It could be for LGBTQ. It could be for civil rights. It could be for anything that you feel you need to be an ally for. Any, for any one of these issues that have permeated culture, that it's more than just showing up and saying, yep, I'm here now. Like, it's bigger than that. And you spoke yourself, Patrick, and said that you've never contemplated self-harm. Well, I have. And I'll, I'll still never compare myself to this because it's not, it's not even, it's the most disrespectful thing you can do because every situation is so separate. I also deal with depression, anxiety on a regular basis. I also, I also often feel all the time alone and I've just been, I can, it feels like almost daily and it may not be that much, but it feels like it where I'm at my lowest and I stare at my phone and I'm looking for someone to call or text. And my mind tells me, yeah, nobody cares. And I know in my right mind, that's bullshit. But the thing that people don't understand about mental illness is that the very essence of mental illness means that your mind is not working the way it was wired originally to work. That's the very essence of it. Something is astray. And so my daughter deals with heavy anxiety, medicated anxiety, and um, multiple other things that I don't feel comfortable saying on the air. But and we work with that. And the 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 the, the process I've had to go with her has taught me so much more about myself. Because when you see it in a 12, 13 year old girl, I'm a grown ass man here. And I think I do pretty well with compartmentalizing. But it's important to note, because I want to backdoor everything you said, it's 100% true. I appreciate the fact that so many people say, often hollow, but it still say, well, I'm here for you. That's cool. I know it means well. I know you mean well. But it's just a portion of a bigger situation. And I think it's often disingenuous to say in that moment, well, if anybody needs to talk, I'm here. Cool. What if it's not this moment? What if it's random ass Thursday? You still there for me? I think it's more pertinent that if you care about people to check on them all the time. Patrick, how many times have I just reached out to you and said, man, you're right? Yeah, we, we do that to each other because I know I need that. And oftentimes I'll never ask for help. But the way I ask for help is I give that same way. And I hope that someone cares enough to do the same for me. But it's much bigger than just everything can't be emergency. We can't be ambulances all the time. Sometimes you got to go to and I'm being facetious here and being metaphorical, but sometimes you can't always go to the ER and to fix your problem. Sometimes you got to go to your primary care. Sometimes you need regular help. 
and not emergent help. Because by the time it gets to that point, unfortunately, it could be too late. So don't just holler at me when I'm at my worst. Holler at me when I'm at my best. That's what I need you more. So I'm done. That's I, I appreciate you even bringing I had no idea who was going to talk about this. Very well said. No, I, um, I'm very passionate about this because I think that we have a real mental health crisis in this country. Mm-hmm. And we have a real failing in how we approach help and our concept of what it means. We are, we are a very therapy averse country. Uh, in fact, like there's a stigma that comes with going to therapy that is just now starting to be normalized. Uh, and part of that is, you know, just our way of showing care for others. And that's, you know, I don't, regardless of your feelings, audience, uh, about this little segment, if you don't like this segment, I'm sorry, get over it. Um, care for each other, care for those that love that you love. And like Ray said, all uh, oddly enough, the smallest gesture of our, how, how are you? What's going on with you? Matters. It really matters. And we we need to be we need to be better about that as a whole. And I just I, I want us to be better about that. And you know that's that's why I brought this up today. That's why I you know I took this show on a turn for for the for the finale because it's important. I feel like it's very important, and, and I feel like it doesn't get said very often, and and should be talked about more frequently. So, Dave, I'll let I'll let you wrap this up before I before I say goodbye uh, for the show. Yeah, I just you know, um, I don't me personally. I I you know I deal with down moments and anxiety and all that sort of stuff. But like Ray talking about his daughter, you know, my daughter's dealt with it a whole lot, and and had to deal with a lot of issues with her. I and I think. Like Pat, you're saying there's a mental health crisis. I, I think the world is a very confusing place for a lot of people right now, and, and and especially like issues like you know the LGBTQ community and, and and people coming into. It's great that people are being honest about their sexuality and, and coming to terms with who they really are, but I think it's important for the rest of us to realize that that can be very confusing and very difficult for a lot of people to come to grips with who they are. Like I've watched my daughter for a period of five years progress from trying to understand who she was sexually, you know, from a sexuality standpoint, even from a gender standpoint and and trying to tell her, Hey, look, I understand you're going through this stuff. Don't make any hard and fast decisions right now. Let some of this play itself out because you are still in your developmental years so you combine all that with like, especially with kids like teenagers, you're developing your prefrontal cortex and all this stuff is still happening. It is very confusing for them when you see everything going on social media, everything uh, entertainment wise, and they're being fed so many mixed messages that, you know, if you've got kids, you know, like, like Ray, you're saying, reach out to them more often, not just on an emergency basis, man, if you got kids and they're teenagers, you really need to be up talking to them as much as possible to try and figure out, Hey, what's going on in your head? Is this confusing you? Is, 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 is what do you think about this? So I think that's all I really want to talk about that. It was just you guys listening to you guys talk about this. It's like, you know, there's, there's a big crisis out there. It is a confusing world. You lump in a global pandemic that 
on top of everything that no one's had to deal with before. And yeah, is it any real wonder you got mental health issues? I, I mean, what, what happened to Daphne? Um, yeah, I mean, what are you, what are you going to say? It's a tragic situation. And, and, you know, we were all on social media that night, seeing the frantic attempt to get to her that unfortunately failed. And, and, you know, I think I mentioned to you, Ray, it's ironic how alone she thought she was when in reality, there were so many people who were there with her. The question of course is, did she know that? And if she knew that, would she have done what she did? Not did she know that. Could she have accepted that in that moment? Because we know, we know, I know people care about me, but when I'm at that moment, left is right. Up is down, you know? And yeah, I, I don't want to elongate this any more than we need to. Uh, just right. take I, care of yourselves. Go get checked out. Go get go get go see a, a therapist. Get some counseling. Let's all just become a better society. And and that and again, ultimately, the message I wanted to get out of here is just care for each other, and, and actually show it. Don't just say it. Show it, because that's that's where the rubber hits the road here. So, on that somber note. Um, we're gonna. I'm gonna shift gears for one other thing, a uh, very brief deal, because I don't want to end on, on a downer. It's an awkward transition. I'm just gonna own it. But today, as we're filming or as we're recording here on September 5th, it is one of my heroes' birthdays. Uh, no longer with us, Freddie Mercury, born September 5th. Happy birthday to Freddie. The biggest personality in my opinion on a stage ever um and easily always in the conversation of greatest front person for a band and so he would have been 75 today uh, a life lost way way too soon tragically to aids during a time when we didn't really understand it uh and at a time where his passing helped change the attention and focus of how we were approaching this disease as a world. So, you know, for me, raise a glass. Happy birthday, Freddie Mercury, 75. Listen to some Queen today, everybody. Second best uh, second best Queen lead singer ever. You're what? dead to me. What? <laughs> we had to get some levity in here, dog. I'm sorry. We did. We had to lighten the mood a little bit. I get it. And I'm actually going to – we're actually – I'm going to play an outro – today after we say our goodbyes of my friend my favorite freddie mercury concert moment so i've got it queued up i made it uh so dave i don't know what you're going to do with other outros but i got a little outro for us for the show it's about two minutes long and on that note are there banjos gonna, involved i mean that's all i want to know if there's banjos there are no, there are no banjos Damn no it. banjos just can you imagine Creed with the banjo? Not Creed, uh, queen with the banjo i can't imagine creed with a banjo either ray just so you know well I mean, in fairness, there is a track on the uh, Night at the Opera album that is played on a ukulele. So it is not completely out of the realm of possibility. But the clip I'm going to play for everybody on the way out is just one of my favorite examples of the way Freddie Mercury commands an audience and a crowd. It is a clip from him in 1986 in front of a full Wembley Stadium doing his famous call and response routine. We'll get to that on our way out of the show. 
Dave, it's going to do it for us on Bandwagon Nerds. Tell the world where they can find you and follow you out there in the interwebs. Okay, before I get to that, I do want to say one thing to the people listening out there. If you feel safe doing it, go watch Shang-Chi, please. Fantastic movie. Box office numbers are really stronger than we thought. It's great for Marvel it's great for the Eternals. It's great for Spider-Man No Way Home. If you feel safe going to the movies, go. You will not be disappointed. We'll be talking about that, I know, this week on the Nerd Review and next week on Bandwagon Nerds because Mr. O'Dad hasn't seen it yet. But other than that, you can check me out on Twitter at Attitude Ag. That is at Attitude A-G-G and on Facebook.com slash Attitude of Aggression. Go see Shang-Chi. 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 Go, go see Sean. the movie. Not Sean. Sean. You know what I mean, yeah. right? <laughs> Inside joke. Um, of course, I'm at It's Ray Cash. It's R-E-Y's and Mysterio. C-A-S-H as in dollars. And part of my contract, I am obligated to mention the fact that we have not mentioned Fern Gully today. So there you go. Congratulations. Royalties from them? You can follow me at Wrestling Realist on the Twitter. That is at W-R-E-S-T-L-N-G-R-E-A-L-I-S-T. Also, follow the show at Bandwagon Nerds, where we shared that article about a great domestic start for Shang-Chi. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Bandwagon Nerds. Now, get out of the basement. Get some sun. Head over to the movie theater and check out Shang-Chi. Listen to some Queen and Freddie Mercury. This has been Bandwagon Nerds on the ChairShot Radio Network, a part of the ChairShot.com.
Kentucky. TheChairShot.com. Always use your head. Let's get you ready to fight. Wait, what? Well, multi-platform global operation. Every fight, live stream on the dark web. Thousands of viewers placing bets as we speak. This is going to take your brand to a whole new level. I think there's been some sort of confusion. I like your spike face. They're my cousin. Usually, you got to fight your way to central ring. But a viral star like you, front of the line, babe. I'm not here to fight anybody. OK, I'm looking for my sister, Shushale. Never heard of her. We just lost a fight at the last minute, so you get the next slot. Nice one, Helen. Is he really fighting in one of these? Oh, no, 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 no. These are like low-level fights. You're gonna be fighting up there. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.